Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Juliana Daly. The Monroe County Council has joined area environmental organizations in requesting more time for public comment on a logging and controlled burn project planned for the Hoosier National Forest. The proposed project is called the Houston South Vegetation Management and Restoration Project, a 30-day public comment period set to close on December 26, 2018. Speaking in the County Council's December 11th meeting, Council President Shelley Yoder said she has stressed the importance of adequate public input to Hoosier Forest Supervisor Michael Chavez. Now, I have since uh, spoken to Michael Chavez with, and I haven't spoken to him, we've exchanged uh, voicemails, but uh, the, the concern was that, well, of course, the public can continue to make comment. But I think it's very important that the uh, public officials, the public uh, bodies in, um, in the affected areas all have a voice here and at the beginning. The project is in what's called a scoping period where forest officials figure out how to best accomplish management goals. Members of the public are allowed input, but are being asked to provide supporting documentation for their comments. Richard Harris, a board member of the conservation group Friends of Lake Monroe, told the council this is a challenging requirement. Uh, this is a process that is, I think, not well understood by a lot of people. It's almost like you have to be a professional in order to be able to comment on these things. So. Uh, a time extension would really be helpful, I think, for most people to be able to understand what's involved in coming on it. They talk about supporting documentation and those things, and those don't uh, happen quickly for people who are not real familiar with the process. So I think the extension would, would go well, not only for you to have the opportunity to comment, but for the public to understand what the project is and what the process is and to be able to uh, make meaning, meaningful comments. According to the U.S. Forest Service, the proposed project is meant to improve wildlife habitat, repair roads, and improve stream viability. It will, quote, reduce the amount of non-native pines to encourage oak and hickory stands to provide a more suitable habitat to a wider array of wildlife species, unquote. The proposed Houston South project plans call for logging 4,000 acres, including 417 acres of clear-cutting. Prescribed burns are planned for another 10 to 12,000 acres. The proposed project spans parts of Jackson and Lawrence counties, but it could impact water quality at Lake Monroe, Monroe County's water source. Sherry Mitchell 
Bruker is the founder and president of the environmental organization Friends of Lake Monroe. In a presentation to the council on December the 11th, Bruker said, quote, we're looking at two things, a risk to recreation and water supply, and a need that's debatable, unquote. Our concerns are about erosion and the sub subsequent sediment and nutrient delivery to the lake as that soil uh, moves off of the um, steep slopes that are there and into uh, perennial and ephemeral streams also. It can move down into uh, the uh, Salt Creek. The Salt Creek is the most impaired area, the south fork of the Salt Creek in the Lake Monroe watershed. Bruger also took issue with the Forest Service selectively supporting oak and hickory trees. The Forest Service says this will support a broader array of wildlife. They will be using herbicide on uh, native trees to uh, change the vegetation structure, basically to um, keep the forest in oak hickory when its natural succession would be towards beech maple. So this is something that's not limited even to this project. It will occur, have to occur repeatedly in order to maintain that forest, something that it's not going to um, move towards naturally. Council member Eric Spoonmore read the council's letter requesting an extension of the public comment period. In it, the council expresses a number of concerns, from the cost of maintaining water quality to inadequate notification. The letter is addressed to District Ranger Michelle Padawani. The Forest Service has given the public and local government 30 days during the busy end of year and holiday season to send site-specific comments about the proposal, along with supporting information to help identify issues, develop alternatives, or predict environmental effects. Local government, and additionally, the general public needs time and opportunity to learn more about this project and provide input before the process moves forward in the scoping process. We are also concerned, and you are aware, that there has been a problem with the receipt of the scoping letter. Because of the delivery method, the scoping letter was sent to the junk mail of many recipients. We suspect there are many interested parties who should be notified by another method, and we suggest a new dissemination of the scoping letter. In order for us to provide comments, we require more information than is contained in the scoping letter. We request that in the interest of attaining the broadest and most comprehensive public comment, a widely advertised public workshop is conducted to provide the public with detailed maps, explanations of the proposed procedures, and opportunities to ask questions and provide comments. The official deadline for public comment on the Houston South project remains December the 26th at midnight. However, District Ranger Michelle Padawani has told WFHB she will still accept comments after the deadline and examine them with her interdisciplinary team. If the project is ultimately approved, the Forest Service says it will be carried out in phases over a 10-year period. Reindeer numbers have fallen by more than half in two decades. The latest numbers come from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's 2018 Arctic Report Card. It lists the impacts of global warming on the Earth's northernmost region. Reindeer and caribou losses are important because of their impact on Arctic ecosystems and cultures. 
reindeer are important prey for wolves and biting flies and a key source of food and clothing for indigenous groups. The report found that reindeer and caribou herds have declined by 56% in the past 20 years. That's a decrease from 4.7 million to 2.6 million animals. Five herds in Alaska and Canada were especially at risk. Their populations have declined by more than 90% and show no signs of rebounding. While it's normal for caribou and reindeer herds to swell and shrink, some herds are at an all-time recorded lows. The declining population is attributed to a few factors. One factor is that there is less food for caribou. Caribou eat lichen, which grows on the ground. Warmer temperatures encourage taller plants to grow. These tall plants outcompete the lichen, leaving caribou without food. Another factor is that insects are becoming more problematic. There are more insects in caribou habitat due to warmer temperatures. The caribou spend their energy hiding from them or fending them off instead of looking for food. Finally, winters are changing the Arctic. More rain is falling in caribou habitat. This rain can freeze into a layer of ice that the reindeer cannot break it through to catch food. And now for some good news. On December 18th, the Washington, D.C. City Council voted unanimously to transition to 100% renewable energy by 2032. The decision is part of the Clean Energy D.C. Omnibus Act of 2018. That law commits the nation's capital to reduce emissions from buildings and transportation. This commitment means that the nation's capital now has the most thorough climate policy of any U.S. city. Under the law, all federal buildings will need to incorporate stricter energy efficiency standards. The law creates a task force to write those new standards. The law also includes transportation. All public transportation and private vehicle fleets must be carbon-free by 2045. The law should reduce the capital's total greenhouse gas emissions 42% by 2032. Over 1,000 public and private institutions are now pledging to divest from fossil fuels. This comes as a part of global divestment movement. The purpose of the movement is to cut investing in fossil fuels in order to reduce their production. The institutions that have vowed to divest from fossil fuels hold almost $8 trillion in combined assets. According to a report by the group 5350.org, 37 countries are taking part. That same report says that 65% of commitments are coming from countries other than the U.S. The institutions involved include capitals of major cities, banks and insurance companies, pension funds, and faith groups, as well as cultural, health, and educational institutions. The divestment movement has set a new goal for 2020. They want pledges of over 2,000 divestments, totaling $12 trillion in combined assets. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Juliana Daly. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired or if you have ideas for future stories, please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. Up next, a conversation between WFHB's Norm Holy and Purdue Enology professor Christian Butsky about how climate change will impact wine production. This is Norm Holy for WFHB, and today I'm interviewing uh, Professor Christian Butska. 
He is a professor of food science at Purdue University, and he is a member of the Indiana Wine Grape Council. So he's an expert on making wine in Indiana and around the world. So how is the wine grape crop doing this year in Indiana? The uh, grapes in Indiana are are ripening well. Uh, In fact, uh, um, as I'm a member of the Purdue Wine Grape Team, uh, we're looking at uh, the experimental vineyards that uh, the university has here across the state. And uh, we're just looking actually at the first numbers of uh, how much crop to expect. Um, We have a little pilot winery here that we um, make wine at, turn the grapes that we grow out in the vineyards uh, to make batches of wine that we can then show to the commercial grape growers so that they can see what kind of new varieties uh, are coming down the road or how grapes uh, are doing in different parts uh, of the state. And so everything is looking good. Uh, We just had a workshop uh, in Bloomington um, uh, last week and visited uh, Oliver's uh, Creek Bend Vineyard, one of the most beautiful properties in the state, and uh, everything looked uh, looked really good. Do you need to introduce new varieties uh, of grapes as the climate warms? Well, as uh, we're facing uh, a changing climate uh, globally, uh, we uh, certainly are in the process of continuously evaluating uh, new grape varieties. Um, But uh, that's not just a matter of of a changing climate. It also is always a matter of changing consumer preferences or optimizing uh, the quality of the wines that we make uh, here in Indiana. So there's always room uh, for a new blending component or variety that does better in North Southern Indiana versus Southern Indiana variety that uh, produces more colors or uh, more flavors. Um, so there's always room for something new. What are the prospects for the long term, given the fact that we'll have many more days over 90 degrees Fahrenheit? Um, what are the long-term prospects for, for the wine grape in Indiana? So if, if you look at how the climate is changing, if you look at some of the models uh, that have particularly been done uh, for the wine grape industry uh, around the world, as, as uh, wine grapes are a very sensitive crop, and the grapes are very much influenced by the climate, the temperature profile in particular, throughout the day, throughout the season. And so um, that's where we're looking at how uh, things are changing. They are changing very slowly, you know, so we're looking at really substantial changes, you know, more in 50 years, maybe the end of the century. So things are not happening that rapidly, but it is happening, and because the impact on the quality and with that, the price of wine is so substantial, uh, grape growers are always on the forefront of exploring, you know, what can we do? Um, let's say in France or in Italy, uh, in Spain, where people have been doing the same thing for hundreds of years, the same varieties, the same practices, the same farming practices, the same winemaking practices. So changing that, uh, maybe planting a new variety or a different variety that is uh, slower ripening. Uh, that allows you to uh, grow grapes in a warming climate. And those are all challenges that the industry is, is facing. And um, if you look at California, again, going back to the 1930s and 40s, where it was planted and recommended to be planted then, um, those things are gradually changing. 
consumer preferences for different wine varieties or styles are changing too, uh, as I as I mentioned. But uh, if you look at the Central Valley in California, where the vast majority of all the grapes in the United States are coming from, um, we have wine grapes there, we have raisin grapes, we have table grapes, and the warmer it, the climate gets, uh, the more it is really suitable for either raisin growing or table grape growing. Uh, and uh, that's why most of the premium uh, growing regions are in the coastal valleys like Napa or Sonoma. Um, and as it gets warmer, uh, it becomes more and more difficult to grow high-quality wine grapes. And uh, again, you know, that's, that's really what the growers in those regions are facing. They're looking for new uh, regions to maybe expand into something where it's a little bit cooler. And we see that trend uh, around the world. In Chile, for example, in South America, um, people are moving further south, closer to Antarctica, to find cooler uh, regions. Um, in Argentina, they're going to higher elevations to find cooler regions. The same in Spain. They're going into the Pyrenees um, to stay away from the heat in a southern Mediterranean climate because cooler and more moderate climate makes eventually for better wine quality. What's the grape uh, wine industry like in Oregon or Washington State? Of course, they're very different climates. Uh, Oregon uh, in its coastal valleys, um, making Pinot Noir a cool climate variety, for example. Um, Washington State uh, behind the rain shadow of the other Cascades in a desert um, climate behind the mountains with hardly any rain, um, very different, but but quite warm. You know, we had a lot of wildfires in that area uh, last year as well. Um, Washington and Oregon were affected, so it's not that this is a super cool climate uh, um, these days anymore either. For that, you will have to move up even even further north. But uh, we do see very high-quality wines produced there now in the current climate. Uh, but uh, Washington State, Eastern Washington, for example, uh, that makes some of the best Merlot or some of the best Riesling in the country today, uh, has the exact opposite kind of climate as we have here in Indiana. Uh, it's a desert climate where it hardly rains at all, just a few inches every year. Uh, while here in Indiana, um, we are at the same latitude as Northern California, but we do just like we have uh, regular rains throughout the growing season, and that makes for um, a very different uh, type of grape growing. I'd like to ask you about Germany. Um, are, are they producing red wines uh, in Germany now, or are they still doing mostly whites? Yes and yes. Uh, so the Germans have always struggled to make um, real intense uh, red wines. Um, the majority or the, the most popular variety in Germany to make uh, red wine is, is what they call uh, Blauer Spätburgunder, uh, Pinot Noir as we, as we know it here. So the same variety they actually grow in Oregon very successfully. Um, but uh, traditionally it's too cool there to make uh, the kind of intense red wines that we're expecting from California or from Australia. Uh, but uh, they make lighter styles. Actually similar, uh, more, more similar in style to some of the red wines that we make here in, in, uh, in Indiana. Um, but their projections, their climate models uh, really indicate that they'll be able to grow Cabernet along the Rhine, um, you know, 50 years from now or even, even less. Uh, and that grape growing there will move into northern Germany. And, and we see those indications. I, I saw uh, vineyards in, in Denmark. There are vineyards in Poland, in Holland, uh, you know, certainly an established industry now in southern England. So all those northern European countries 
are developing their grape industry, um, expecting that grape growing um, will be possible in in those cooler climates and and germany is is looking very closely at how to adapt to those changes um going more into red wine production and looking how to change the styles of the german white wines um as the grapes are accumulating more sugar um the wines becoming more alcoholic uh, and again, uh, very different than, than some of the styles that the german uh, white wines have become known for. It's a fantastic amount of information. I'd like to thank you for the interview. I've been interviewing Dr. Christian Putzka. He's a professor of food science at Purdue University and an expert on wines. to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short, headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. It's time now for In Nature. Written and recorded by Eco Report contributors, past and present. This is In Nature. We have to turn the mic way up in order to pick up this sound, but it's the echolocation signal of the Indiana bat. Indiana bats live in hardwood forests and hardwood pine forests. It is common in old growth forests as well as agricultural land like croplands and old fields. Overall, the bats mostly live in forest, crop fields, and grasslands. As an insectivore, the bat will eat both terrestrial and aquatic flying insects like moths, beetles, and mosquitoes, and midges. The Indiana bat spends summer months living throughout the eastern United States. During winter, however, they cluster together and hibernate in only a few caves. Since about 1975, the population of Indiana bats has declined by about 50%. Based upon the 1985 census of hibernating bats, the Indiana bat population was estimated at 244,000. About 23% of the bats hibernated in caves in Indiana. The Indiana bat lives in caves only in winter, but there are few caves that provide the conditions necessary for hibernation. 
stable low temperatures are required to allow the bats to reduce their metabolic rates and conserve fat reserves. These bats hibernate in large tight clusters which contain a, a few thousand individuals. You've been listening to In Nature. This week in our listening area, Brown County State Park is holding a Mysterious Hills Winter Hike Series. The first one will be a hike to Kelp Village on December 22nd. It will run from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. After meeting at the Nature Center, participants will follow ruggedly rated Trail 6 around Straw Lake towards an area known as Kelp Village. This hike is approximately three miles long. Be sure to dress for the weather. A winter solstice hike will take place at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, December 22nd from 2 to 2.30 p.m. Join Tony for an easy 30-minute hike. Learn about solstice facts, superstitions, and folklore. Meet at the Donaldson Shelter Park parking lot. The full moon during the month of December is known as the cold moon. You can take a cold moon hike at McCormick's Creek State Park on Saturday December 22nd from 7 to 8 p.m. Meet at the Deer Run Shelter to hike an easy 1.2 miles by the light of the cold moon. Organizers recommend to dress warm and bring a light just in case you need one. Every year during the month of December, the annual bird count takes place all over the world. Participate in the Christmas bird count at Spring Mill State Park on Sunday December 23rd from 8 to 11 a.m. Meet at the Grissom Memorial parking lot and be sure to dress for the weather. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, and Sarah Vaughn. Andrew Brown, Kaylin Huffman-Brower, and Sarah Vaughn edited the script. Norm Holy produced our feature. Sarah Vaughn engineered today's show. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Our interim producer is Jan Walker, and executive producer is Wes Martin. 
Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, and get out and hike episodes anytime at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Todd Wicks. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.